Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And um, I'm really excited for you to hear the story of Russell Huntley. Um, we tried this a, a week or so ago, and Russell was dealing with uh, a really bad head cold. So we, we punted and we were re recording today. So, But his story is really amazing. Um, and after we get into it, you'll understand why I was so drawn to Russell and his story. But before we get into that, Russell, we're going to start this with kind of our usual question in the anything but typical <laughs> podcast. But the question is, so you and your wife, you're, you're making your way to uh, Lake Tillery to get away. And maybe you're fueling up the vehicle in Albemarle or something like that before you get away to the, the, the oasis at your lake house. And somebody is talking about you. They recognize you because you've been that way before. Uh, and they're talking about you, but they don't realize you can overhear and understand everything they're saying about you. What is it that you would love somebody to be saying about you? I'd want them to, to uh, be talking about me being a good person, just being a good human. And, you know, honestly, I've never heard many people say anything bad about me. I, I certainly am not, you know, bragging or anything like that, but I've never heard anybody say anything bad about me, you know, not really. So I'm kind of fortunate there, but I, I you know, I make mistakes just like anybody else, but I would like for people to say, hey, he's a good person. You know, he's a good guy. Well, that was what was what drew me to you when we first met um, before we started working together. You wanted to get to know me and I wanted to get to know you. And I think um, what was supposed to be an hour long time at Starbucks ended up going at least a couple. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That is correct. It, it did. It went on and on, and I enjoyed it, you know, very much. Uh, we had a lot of uh, shared uh, challenges that, um, you know, it just, it was very good to talk to you at that particular time, especially. Yeah, yeah. So, Ben, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit, you know, dive in a little bit more of his background, and then we'll keep rolling. Yeah, so, so Russell owns, uh, we'll call it a, a portfolio of companies. Uh, some of them being Caliber Construction, Straight Line Pumping, East Coast, Caliber Associates. And, and we're going to dive into the dynamics of all of that. But I want, I want us to start today, Russell, with you describing the transition from working for a, a dominant force in the industry and then going off on your own. Can you describe that process for us? And, th and then we'll keep going from there. Oh, it was terrifying. Um, you know, I had worked, uh, that was a, uh, my dad and his uncles had a family business, which was bought out by uh, kind of the other side of my family. So we were in that business for, you know, I would say from the time I was 10, 11 years old, I was working in the afternoons, helping my dad on their, with their company. And it was a very much a family thing. So I worked there for 28 years and I quit in 2009, um, and, you know, obviously there was no work then. It was the midst of the depression or recession. And, 
it was um it was terrifying it was, in a in a way it was like I, I felt like i was leaving you know my life i was leaving uh my family and there was a lot of emotional ties to it to go with the big risk you know of going out there and trying to make a living in uh, a landscape that there was just no work and I didn't have much money and you know we were living off our 401k and just you know it was it was you know I've heard a lot of people tell these stories but I went from a steady paycheck to no paycheck for years you know I would, occasionally I would make a little bit but it was, uh, it was wrenching. I mean, it, we, we just put our heart and souls in uh, the, the bigger business that I worked at for so long. And you were so invested in it. When you left it, you, you felt like you were betraying them. They felt like I was betraying them as well. And it was just, it was hard. I think emotionally it was as hard as the financial side, which was really hard because I had always gone from talking to my Aunt Midge. She was the lady that held the purse spring purse strings and I could always go say hey I need a check for this or that and it was just there well when you when you go on your own and you've probably been there before there's no check there there's no money there's checks but no money you know so you, right. you can't it's use really a, right it's, it's like somebody asked me he said I need a check I said well I can give you a check but I don't know what you're going to do with it you know it's uh <laughs> But it was it was difficult, um, really incredibly difficult. You know, if I if I had it to do over with, knowing what I know now, I doubt I would have done it. You know, but I'm glad I did because, you know, after the struggles and all the heartaches and pain, like there there is a little reward, but there's a, a satisfaction of hey, I actually made it this far. You know, and I might make it a little bit further. It's uh, it's been rewarding, but it the the first, you know. Uh, I guess stepping off of the boat and, you know, they said that first step's a doozy. It really was, but you know, you, that's just what you got to do. Got to hold your nose and go. So the, one of the interesting piece on that is the timing of it all, right? You said you, you, you quit and changed in 2009 when mid recession, there's, there's no jobs out there for you to get. What was the catalyst for leaving then? Cause it's not like you were leaving because of, the immense opportunities in the landscape of the industry or anything like that? Well, the reason was it was a, uh, when I mentioned the family business, it was uh, very much family. And when we were uh, larger, when we were rolling, everybody was kind of separated. So I had a, a division in Charleston, South Carolina, and I ran a good many crews in Charlotte, but I ran my own deal. So it was a, uh, it wasn't, hard to to get along with everybody but whenever the recession came we had to downsize and downsize and downsize and we moved out of satellite and branches back into a main place there was a lot of politics there was a lot of uh you know nepotism there were just uh, it was just uh it just got really political and that was my main reason for leaving i said you know if i can if i can get out here and fight through this, you know, in four or five years, there's probably some opportunities. And that was, that was the reason it just got where there was too much family. It really was. I mean, it was good. I'm on good terms with them now, but it was difficult at the time. 
So, Russell, take us back a little bit more because we haven't even revealed yet what the nature of that company was. And so I want you to talk about that company and what it was known for, how deep the roots go, you know, in history and some of the amazing things that you got to do as part of that, that led you into where you're at today. Well, the history of that, uh, you know, is two families kind of intertwined. And my family started uh, in the masonry business in the 1800s. Um, my great-grandfather was a mason, and it was just kind of handed down. And by the time it got to where I was, we were all masons. I mean, even some of the girls could lay brick. You know, that's what we did. And uh, my uh, dad and his brothers had a company and there was another company with the other side of the family. They were there and they both were in the masonry industry. Uh, but they uh, bought my dad's company early in their career. We had been in business longer than them. And we always joked about, we taught them how to lay brick and they taught us how to make money at it because they were very good businessmen. They still are very solid businessmen. But it was, uh, we started, I know whenever I started, I think we had maybe 25, 30 employees there. And that was including my dad's company and their company. And, you know, at the time we peaked in 2006, we had close to 1,700 employees. We were the biggest masonry company in North America that we knew of. So we, we really grew it, and it was a big family thing. We uh, did things as groups, and we really – I don't know how you could recreate what we did. It was, it was really awesome, you know, when it was really going. So as you then go from, from that experience and start to think about creating your own thing, what what were you setting out to do? What was the vision of, of your company when you were going out to leave there in 2009? To be the very best at what I did. Um, we were a hard production outfit. Uh, quality was important, but production was more important. And we, I didn't feel like we did as well as we could on quality. And I always wanted to do it, give a better quality product. And I wanted to be that guy, not the biggest guy, just the guy that does the best work. And that was my goal in trying to, you know, when I was starting my company, that, the way I, that was the way I wanted to do it. And that's the thing we've always stressed is quality over production. And, you know, a lot of times that's not as profitable, but in the long run, I think it's about the same. But you really can look back on that better when you leave a quality product in your trail because our products last lifetimes. You know, whatever we leave somebody, if it's concrete, if it's masonry, if it's stonework, anything we do, it'll be there when we're gone most of the time. So that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to leave a legacy of doing good work and being uh, competent at what we did. And everybody that I hired, that was the same kind of people that I hired. They have the same mindset. You know, Russell, when, when you and I had that uh, expanded Starbucks experience, which was so wonderful, one of the things that you, you mentioned in that time together was this notion of being an artisan. 
And um, you talked about some of the cool things that you've been able to do that you're really proud of that point to that quality of work, even though your companies, I mean, you've, you're not running little small mom and pop companies. You've got formidable companies. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of those kind of marquee moments and things that and projects that you got to work on that you're really proud of. Oh man, I'm, I really don't know where to start. Um, I've got to work on so many different things that I don't know which one. I've just been, it's been a blessing. I'll tell you one that I did, um, and this is just one that pops to mind, is there's a hotel called the Elliott House Inn in Charleston. And it was started in the 1700s. And, you know, they would, what they would do is build one floor and they would build another floor as they got money. And each one of these rooms in this inn was owned by a different family. So it got built over probably 70 or 80 years. They just kept building the floors. It got to be three stories high. Well, in the 196 earthquake down there, it shifted the walls. You know, there's a lot of buildings down there that almost failed. And some of them did. But this one was, uh, you know, about 20 feet wide, probably 120 feet long. It had these individual rooms that been built up, you know, over the years with just old brick and everything like that and it had sagged where they were afraid it was going to collapse so all of these buildings these in these rooms are still individually owned by different families that have handed down so we went in there and worked with the company we took that thing apart from the top all the way down piece by piece dismantled it, numbered all the lumber, took all the brick down, saved all those, tore the foundation all the way down, and then put a new footing in on top of that and rebuilt it structurally sound back up. And it's there today. If you want to go around a room, you can go around a room. It, we, I just got to work on a lot of projects like that. I did an American flag at the uh, Veterans Memorial in Florence, South Carolina, where we cast a flag out of concrete so if you go down there the the flag is this big concrete flag that's like maybe 20 feet long probably eight feet high and it's it's waving just like a flag and it's really unique like I, I don't know where anybody's ever done anything like that and we worked with an artist I can't remember his name now uh, he's a really famous artist out of Charleston, and he made us a form. So he he uh, made it out of fiberglass, and he had everything, all the ripples and everything in there. And then we, we went in there and formed it and put that form inside there, and it basically stamped the front of that concrete wall. It's just, I've done so many things. I mean, I can't even name them. We've done brick sculptures, you know, um, on top of doing our day jobs, so. I've had a lot of fun with it. I remember you talking about that Elliott House Inn in particular, and I just find that fascinating because, you know, something that goes back to <clears throat> Revolutionary War days, dismantling it brick by brick, you know, um, 
piece by piece going down to the foundation, relaying footers and then rebuilding it back brick. I mean, that's, that's mind boggling for me. And I just think that's really cool given the history of your families going back into the 1800s doing this and then still having such a passion for this kind of work, I just think it's really cool. So yeah, those were, you mentioned a couple of them um, that I wanted you to highlight. So thank you for doing that. Yes, sir. Now, Russell, this is, and if, if Gary was wrong on this, we can always cut this out, but um, he had mentioned something about a bricklaying record. Is there, is there a story there of, of you having some sort of bricklaying record? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was, this was in, uh, I guess the nineties, uh, I don't remember really what year it was, but there was a guy named Sammy Wingfield and he held the Guinness book of world records record for how many brick he laid in an hour. And, uh, he was going to do a, uh, like an exhibition and like a contest you know, to do that. And some of the brick companies got behind him and, you know, wanted to do a little show and stuff. And, and we, uh, we said, oh, we'd be interested in that because we, you know, we said we can lay brick. So we, we had some runoffs for everybody to kind of practice and see who actually was the fastest because everybody thinks they're the fastest. <laughs> everybody thinks they're the best of the Masons, you know, so you had to do some runoffs. So we did one runoff and I won the first one and then we went into the second one and I came in second in it, but my quality was way better than the other guy. So I said, well, technically I feel like I won that one, but we went from there and there were three finalists that went and one of them was my brother-in-law. The other one was my first cousin. So we went to Dallas, Texas and there was uh, habitat for humanity houses and they had them set up where they were doing the brick veneer zone. So you had a straight wall. They were equal lengths. Each one of us had the same wall that we went on. So we went in there and I think that, Mr. Wingfield had, I think he had laid 800 brick of an hour, something like that. And we had laid, you know, somewhere around 15 and 1600. We were doing our runoffs an hour. So we knew we could probably beat him. So we went out there and we had the contest and it was televised and everything. And my brother-in-law won. So he's in the Guinness Book of World Records now. He holds the record. And he laid, I want to say, 1,510 brick in an hour. And I laid about 40 less than he did, somewhere around that number. So I have the distinction of being the second fastest bricklayer in the world. And even worse than that, my brother-in-law is the record holder. So I've had to live with that for years, but it was still a great experience and it was fun. So when we got through with that, uh, you know, I was kind of beat, you know, came back and then we had a journeyman's contest and that is to establish who the best bricklayer is. So that was in North Carolina. So we came back and it was shortly after the, the contest and I was still kind of gripey about him beating me and all this stuff. And we got back and I won that contest. So I still hold the, record for being the best bricklayer in North Carolina so I can carry that one but I still got to see my brother-in-law every other Sunday and tell him to pass the beans and he's the world record holder you know so I have to 
have to live with that. But he tied for 17th, and I won the the best bricklayer contest. So I, I keep gigging him on that. But we've about forgotten it by now. But it was it was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. And it was uh, it's gratifying to be able to do something like that. And you know, it wasn't just me or him. It was our families that really helped us to develop our talents you know what talent we had they were really nurturing driving uh criticizing like everything that it took to get the best out of us and I'm really thankful for that when I look back you know I'm just like that's a craft that if I go anywhere or my brother-in-law we could go anywhere in the world and if there's a brick being laid we can get a job so I figured if, you know, anything went wrong, I still got that. But that came from our families working with us from a young age. You know, that was what we did for a living. So they were teaching us how to make a living with our hands. And I'm still grateful for that. I don't, I very rarely get to lay any brick anymore. I haven't laid brick much at all in years, but I could still do it. And I'm just really grateful for what they did for me. They were very, uh, they were, it was a good family, still is. They really looked out for us. I think that's pretty cool. So you actually, you've accomplished what you've wanted to do because you said quality over production was what was important for you. Yes. So you did yes. win the quality award. And if I remember right from the story, that even though you had 40 bricks shy of the record, Yours were correct, and there were some that could have been probably disqualified. Am I right on that? Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and I always feel that way, so it's kind of a moral victory, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an asterisk by your, your brother-in-law's name there. Yeah, At least you right. know it, and we know it, and anybody listening to this knows it. <laughs> Oh, uh, it was it was really fun. It was a, it, I'll I'll have to say it was really it was a, it was a it was a unique thing, and there was a big crowd there in Dallas when we did that. It was big fun. Same thing when we came back for the best bricklayer contest. We had it was just a lot of fun. It was one of the high points in my life. You know, I had a lot of fun there. So, as you're describing that story, you're you're also using words like the gratitude and your family being part of, of making it where you were able to, to be good and have success and things like that. And you can hear the humility in the storytelling, which Gary had even mentioned when he and I were first talking about uh, you being on the show. One of the characteristics that really stood out about you. So can you talk to us a little bit about, I guess, two sides of that. First off, why is, is humility an important feature for you to maintain? And then also, how is that been ingrained in you? Um, we were uh, raised, you know, we were a hardworking family, but all, all of our families were, my dad was a really hardworking guy and he was very religious, um, very, uh, very humble, very good example. Um, and he always taught me and my brothers to, you know, one, be a good person, but realize that you don't do anything by yourself. There's always a group of people around you. And 
you are gaining from what they have gone through. If they can pass that on to you, you're gaining their experience. So you're resting on their shoulders. So don't ever get to where you think that it's all about you or you did this or you did that. Because if you look back, somebody helped you along the way. And you may not have appreciated it at the time, but always remember that, you know, that you don't do much alone. It's funny, Gary and I are both just taking notes as we're listening to you. It's, no, it, it makes a lot of sense, though, and it's an interesting piece to hear of how you're balancing, as we're having this conversation, the success that you've had while still maintaining those core values of, of things like humility and, and gratitude and things like that. It, it's, a, I think, a unique blend um, that you have. Russell, you know, let's go back to 09 when you started this thing. Um, you know, family businesses can be difficult just because of family dynamics and, you know, children are still seen as children by the parents and, you know, all those kind of things, right? And, and it sounds to me like you went from a level of autonomy when you were basically running the Charleston operations to where, okay, we got to pull things back because the world's falling apart in 08 and 09. And then it continued to do so really into 2010, 2011 for a lot of industries. Um, and then all of a sudden you're kind of back in the midst of, you know, less autonomy, it sounds like, and you, you know, felt like you needed to go do that and have, have more of that yourself. And yet you said it was, you know, leaving something difficult, you know, felt like betrayal, even though you were called really out of the nest to go fly on your own. Um, what are some of the things that helped you get through those difficult days? And, you know, the difficult days don't, aren't always relegated to the rearview mirror, <laughs> right? I mean, difficult days happen as long as we have breath a lot of times, but, um, what, what helped sustain you and keep driving you forward in those moments where you went from, you know, kind of relative security to, man, I'm charting this course largely on your own? Well, I think part of it was my upbringing. Um, my dad always had a saying, and it was kind of common around family but my dad really reinforced the fact that you don't ever ever quit like you just don't like you don't quit um and an example of that that he gave me was my mother was mentally ill all of our life from when I was uh, born she was on so many uh, drugs at the time that they didn't think I would be born normal. And I guess that's debatable, <laughs> but, but uh, she was like that my whole life. And anybody else that had a wife like that and had the situation that we had with her and the difficulties that he had with her, he stuck with her. He never 
ever gave up on her when you know back then a lot of times they would just get somebody committed and they would just go on and live their lives you know and leave that person he never left her and he cared for her uh until she was uh the last she died in 06 the last probably five six years of her life she was bedridden and he cared for her all the way through that, uh, you know, with the help of my family, my aunts and everybody helped with her, but he never quit. I mean, like that was some of the roughest situations with her. Um, she would go through depressions where she was in bed for weeks and, you know, wouldn't get out of bed. And then she would have these manic periods where we would have to keep watch on her all night. You know, you may have to run out at three o'clock in the morning, tackle her in the yard and get her back in the house. It was wow. really chaotic, um, but he never wavered, like none. Like he never even, I know he got frustrated and I could see that, but he never quit. And that wasn't the only example he gave me, but I knew whenever I went in business, there was really no choice. I was kind of married to making it i had to i really didn't have a choice it would have been more expensive to go out of business than stay in it and it just had that thing that if i can just keep going and he used to always tell me just keep going just keep getting up go to work do what you're supposed to do do it every day and i would talk to him a lot when i was going through leaving and starting all that stuff and he would just tell me he said don't quit don't quit and that's a simple thing, but that's so true that anything that you go at uh, in life that is challenging or, you know, ha having a family or raising a family, anything, there's challenges in it, but you just keep going. You do what has to be done. I know one time when we were really rolling big at uh, the company I was with before, we had a uh, guy come in and he was selling us insurance or something like that. And he asked one of my uncles that was one of the owners of the business, he said, what is your job title? And my uncle didn't say anything for a little bit. He sat there and he said, well, he said, I get up every morning at five o'clock and I see what needs to be done and I go do it. Hmm. It's pretty simple. So you get up and you see which fire is the hottest and you go work on that fire and try to get it beat down and go to the next one. But it was just instilled in me from being a small child, uh, playing sports, anything, laying brick, working, don't quit. And you give it 100%. Because in my family, we had two older brothers. I had a lot of cousins. We were all competitive. If you weren't given 100%, it would get noticed and it would get called out. There was no tiptoeing around, like whether you're pulling your weight or not. You got to get with it. And that helped me in being out there and the struggles and the lonely struggles that I had, you know, getting it going uh, is to dig in there, get with the program, make things happen, you know, get up every day, go out there and get something that you can go back and feed your family with. And that was the thing that's, that, that kept me going. And it's kept me going this day. We have, we still have challenges, you know, so you just have to get up every day, see what needs to be done and go do it. So we've we've talked a lot of the last company or the, the company you were with prior, right? The family company and and the beginnings of you going out and creating this new company. But give the listeners a view of 
of what that's evolved into now, right? Do, what are, you have multiple companies now, they kind of interact, they complement each other, things like that. Give everybody a picture of what that looks like today. All right, so my day-to-day life. So what I do is I have managers for each one of these and they are, uh, they have varying degrees of talents. They have different personalities. They have uh, different skill sets. So what I try to do is uh, go around and make sure that I am in tune with the guy that's running the business so that I know what he's doing and I can kind of be a mentor to him. So I have gone from being a hands-on guy in the past to more of I'm managing a manager on each one of these things. And it's with varying degrees of success. Some things we do, we have top-notch managers that you just have to maybe nudge them here and there. And then other ones that I have to work with a good bit. So with them being in different cities and different locations and us doing, uh, we do a lot of commercial work that will be, it could be anywhere, you know, North, South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee. Um, we got one coming in Louisiana. Um, I would, I manage those things. So that's been a real challenge to me going from uh, more of a tactical thing that, you know, where you're, you're touching things and doing things to working with people. So I'm kind of dissociated. I'm not there doing the work, I'm having to see that that person knows how to do the work and give our customers the experience that we want to give them. So that's been my biggest hurdle because I know I could go out there and do it better than probably 80% of the people that I have working for me, but I can't do that and be effective. You can't do as much as I do and try to do it hands-on. You're limited. You just can't do that. So you have to step back and manage it without touching it. Talk about the various entities, what makes each one of them unique, how they interplay as far as the, the various companies, as well as even some of the, the beachheads and locations beyond where you're doing project work? Well, the companies are, they were kind of set up uh, in sequence. So um, we had a partnership with a guy in uh Myrtle Beach that started first and then he kind of took it over because I was going to leave the company I was with and then they taught me to stay and so I just gave it back to him and said you know you run it and if I decide to leave I'll come back and help you so that's what I did and he ran it you know pretty well and we started that one and then whenever I left McGee Brothers which is the company I worked for they had uh the Charleston divisions that I had started, there was no work and they didn't really have anybody to run it. So they said they were going to pull out of there. So I started caliber construction there initially. And we just started doing whatever we could do, whatever work there was to do. And then in Charlotte, uh, started that with a cousin of mine, uh, a little bit later than that, but these companies have always kind of worked separately. Now the, I call it Charleston and Charlotte. We work together a lot back and forth, even though they're separate companies, we will go help them. They'll come help us in Charlotte, you know, whichever way it needs to go. The Myrtle Beach one uh, went from Myrtle Beach. And whenever I left, I, I went from there to start the Wilmington division. So when we got that going, those, the Wilmington and Myrtle Beach areas kind of run semi together. 
we don't uh, have a lot of interaction between the caliber side and the East Coast side. There'll be an occasional thing where we'll help them or they'll help us, but that's kind of a standalone type operation there in the Myrtle Beach and Wilmington areas, the Charleston areas and the Charlotte areas, and the commercial side is all run kind of as one unit with most of the same guys kind of interchanging back and forth. And then the straight line concrete pumping, that's kind of a, that's a thing that we do typically with our job. We have to either buy concrete pumps from people that are uh, supplying that service to us or we can supply it. So we started that to supply ourselves that service basically. Yeah. I love the, the, the notion of vertical integration. You see that, you know, probably one of the, the most amazing examples I ever saw that firsthand was with Coke Industries out of Wichita, Kansas. I did a lot of work with them. And man, that is the most vertically integrated company I've ever seen in my life. Um, and, you know, so I, I just think that's really cool. It's a, a natural evolution. Um, so thanks for giving us some clarity on that. So as you... As you've grown then, and now you have these multiple organizations, some of them work closely together, some of them don't, and they're more separate. It's The piece that's intriguing is how you made this change. You talked about the quality over production. You followed that up with hiring the people with the same mindset. Well, early on, when it's you and a few other people all doing it together, maintaining that quality is significantly easier right than where it is now where there's levels yes. how i want to talk culture a little bit or at least internal on the company side how do you maintain that same standard of quality that you set out to do for you got to talk about it it it's one of those things that, um, and we struggled some this year with it, and it's fresh on my mind, is when we get busy, you tend to uh, hear the squeaky wheel and you're going to get the jobs done where they need to be done. And you're really stressed and quality was struggling. And you have to talk about that. You have to talk about not being blinded by trying to get too much done, trying to get this customer happy without getting the other one happy. You've got to really, it's got to be talked about because it will get uh, acceptable when you're running production because you'll be profitable You know everything's looking good. But if you leave a bad customer experience back there, it's going to be a problem. It's going to cost you. And you've got to talk about that with the guys because in the heat of the battle, they really, and I do the same thing. You get to where you might cut a corner or two. And that's the hardest thing to do without constant chatter. You know, you got to be talking about it. And whenever I go around, what I try to do is if I'm going to these cities, I want to see several jobs. I want to see some active jobs. I want to see some finished jobs and I want to see what I see. And what I'll do is I'll go back and talk about that. You know, I may not even meet with the manager when I go there but what I'll do is say look I went by this job and I saw this we've got to stay on this I saw something over here that didn't look exactly right or if I see something that looks really good I really put the spotlight on I really talk about it a lot and reinforce the fact that we turned out a top quality job here it takes constant reminding and constant um chatter i call it chatter you know it's like playing ball hey you know let's get something going here if you can get people engaged <laughs> and they know you're going to be looking for it you know you can about expect what you inspect so if you don't inspect anything you're not going to get much 
But if you do inspect it and you give them good feedback and bad feedback, it really works. But it's it's never a part time thing. It's not something we can take off this week and come back on it next week. Quality's got to be first all the time. And that's a challenge. I mean, man, that's one of our biggest challenges. But it it really have a lot of guys that um, they have worked with me for years and years through the previous company, through my companies. And they get it. They know it, you know, and they'll they, they don't want to hear bad feedback, you know, on something. But we talk about it. We talk about the good and the bad, but we talk about it a lot because if you don't, it just doesn't maintain front and center like uh, the need to get a job done or the fact that we're short here on help. You kind of forget or it gets blurry what's quality and what's not. So you have to kind of ride herd on that side of it. But. We've had pretty good success with that, but there's still, uh, we got room for improvement. And I don't think that'll ever be over. I don't think quality ever just gets done, you know, gets finished. One thing that you had also mentioned that I think is interesting. So all of these places, you know, they're not, you know, 30 minutes apart, you know, we're three and a half hours from Charleston We're three and a half or so from Myrtle beach. And then, up to Wilmington, even a little further. Um, you're a private pilot. I mean, you you were flying an airplane to a lot of these places yourself, right? Yes, yes, yes. I was. And I had my own airplane whenever I worked with a previous company. And I carried that, you know, with me, but I couldn't afford it. So I had to sell it. But occasionally I still fly. And I've been thinking about now getting a plane because what I've done is I adjusted, you know, I didn't have enough money to keep that airplane. So I sold it. And what I did was I would say, okay, I got to go out of town. So how do I be effective doing that and trying to not stay away from my family more than a night or two. So I got this little rhythm that I do now. I'll be, I'll get up in the mornings and I'll try to get everything kind of beat down by say one o'clock. And I can leave, and anywhere I'm going, I'm not going to hit a whole lot of traffic, so I'll be there about five. So I'll get me some early supper, and I go to bed like eight, nine o'clock, like an old person, and then I'll get up <laughs> at three thirty or four. So I can miss all the traffic. I can hit probably 10, 15 jobs by the time traffic gets thick in the morning. Then I may meet with some of my guys while traffic's thick, and I'll start back home by 11 or 12, and I'm back home mid-afternoon. So that's kind of my routine of this. But it is getting old. I would like to have another airplane. That's uh, You are fast. There's a difference. The thing about the airplanes, here's – Here's, here's what's so good about them. There's no traffic up there. That's the best <laughs> thing. So the problem is, you know, if you're going somewhere, like let's say I've got an airplane at Monroe Airport, which is where I have mine. I got to drive from wherever I'm at to the airport, then fly, then drive from there to the job. A lot of times it don't, it don't seem like it's saving you much time. But on Friday afternoon, when you've been hung out on a job all day and it's 4 o'clock and you're ready to go home, there's a lot of difference in between getting behind the wheel of your truck and getting in the airplane and being back in 35 minutes. You know, it's a, it's a lot of difference. But it's expensive. Speed, speed costs money. So I, I just kind of lived with the truck deal. But I, I've got a rhythm and it, it works out reasonably well. Um, so I want to want to keep going down down this route because I think we're painting a good picture for the, for the listeners here of kind of what it's 
it's uh, evolved into. There was a, a time in, in your career where you dealt with an embezzlement within the company. Can you fill us in on, on that dynamic and, and how you handled that and were able to move forward? I just wore it out. Um, it's unusual. Um, it was just one of those things, you know, it's awkward. It's still awkward. Um, and what I did was eventually got, you know, kind of untangled and we just worked through the difficulties. You know, we were left with a pretty good bit of difficulties there and, you know, financial side and we just worked through it. And I'm friends, you know, those guys. It was, uh, it was just difficult. It, it, and, you know, something like that, I guess you could walk off and leave it or you could just deal with it. And that was where, you know, the way I was raised was you deal with whatever comes your way. And I think that one of the things that I learned the hard way was controls, you know, having financial controls. And when things are going south, you know, get a spotlight on it. Um, I didn't, you know, so I think, you know, proactively, if you keep controls and you keep a spotlight on problems like that and you don't let them fester, you're not going to have as many problems. But if you ever let something get into a situation like that, it's it doesn't get better. And the sooner you can deal with it, the better it is. But it's just difficult if you have um, acquaintances or friends or family or anything like that it just gets to be an emotional thing. You know, you get all torn up with it. So that was a difficult part of it, but we did, you know, get through that, but it was, uh, it was unnecessary and very hard, you know, to recover from that. And have you changed anything inside the company uh, to try and prevent similar type things from happening in the future? Or how did you, how did you handle that internally as far as the, not in the moment, but the moving forward? The moving forward is um, I trust but verify now, you know, um, there was a lot of trust and there's always trust in business, you know, any, anytime there's a lot of trust involved, um, I'm at fault uh, for what happened to me because I didn't really look at it with, uh, you know, close. I just said, oh, you know, it'll kind of work out. You know, we're just in a little bad stretch. But when you get to looking at it, you really need to really look at your financials really closely all the time. So if something's getting out of whack. You need to get a handle on it. You don't let it go because of relationships or anything like that. You just you get in there and deal with it. And I think now I'm much more, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say I'm less trusting, but I really, I got to have some verification. I got to have some proof, you know, that things are getting better or if we got a problem, how'd it happen? You know, and let's get away from this. It's, um, I don't know exactly. I mean, that's a difficult thing to do, but I think you really, you can't just hands off something. I hands off some stuff and just, you know, trusted that it would work out. It didn't. And, you know, I was left there with a pretty big problem and, and, you know, working through that and getting back out of the hole when you don't have anything to work with, it just makes it unnecessary. And that's the thing. A lot of the problems I had, I could kind of see them coming, but I did not deal with them promptly enough. And I think that's the key is to really stay on top of your financials, 
really stay on top of how you're pricing things and know those things and watch them. If you see something getting anywhere out of whack or something doesn't make sense, get with it. Find out what's wrong and get in there and do it quick. Because the longer you wait, the worse it gets. It does not get better. I had two situations like that, and neither one of them ever got better. And if I hadn't have dealt with it at some point, I wouldn't be talking to you guys today. I can tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. And, and Gary, I, I, Gary's story as well, having to deal with, with something, something similar. It's just a, I know you've talked about it multiple times before, Gary. It's just a staple of how you approach business in your life today compared to, to what you did back prior to, uh, to that experience. Yeah, the hard, the hardest part, and that's one of the things that probably took our our initial Starbucks meeting into <laughs> overtime <laughs> because we yes, had so many yes. areas of commonality that it was like painful, but but good. It it's sweet because the hardest part is just the betrayal of trust. <clears throat> you can't put a price on that. I mean, you and I have paid tremendous financial penalties from some of those betrayals of trust, but the, but the, the trust part of with somebody that we really cared about and still may, may still care about, but where it got obliterated, that's, you can't put a price on that. And that's where it, it, it's either going to make you bitter or it's going to make you better. And you can hear like anybody listening to this, you can hear in Russell Huntley, he chose not to be bitter. Um, and he even, what's crazy is he said, yeah, it was actually probably my fault because I didn't move on this or that. Well, wait a minute, Russell, you didn't embezzle, (laughs) you know, you weren't, but I understand, um, you know, that verification part that counterbalances and, and has to work and dovetail with, you know, trusting, um, but that's again, another one of these reasons that I really, um, really connect with you and anybody listening to you, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you've had your own airplane and you've, you've, you've built these really cool companies and all that. That's wonderful. But that all those things pale in comparison to your character and your humility. Like that's, those are the kind of people I like to be around because I feel like I continue to learn from. So one of the things that, and this is really hard to even talk about, but um, you shared with me, first of all, I'm going to make a statement. Whenever I see deep humility in people, I usually know that there's, there's a story behind it and there's usually deep tragedy or deep difficulty. So you shared with us about growing up with your mother um, who was struggling um, and the integrity of your father. Well, that's you know, that's very deep and that's very, um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, what a story. And I didn't even know to the extent until you started talking about on this podcast, but you also shared with me, you know, a really deep heartache that you went through, um, with the loss of a child and, you know, to whatever you're willing to share with the audience. Again, it's for, providing hope to somebody else that's gone through, Hey, life shouldn't be this way. You know, can you share with us a little bit about what, what you've gone through and, and what's happened since then? 
Sure. Um, um, let me go back kind of to uh, a prostate cancer. You know, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in uh, 2011, two days before Christmas, believe it or not, they called me and told me um, I had prostate cancer. So we, uh, I didn't know exactly what to do. And uh, my wife and I had been uh, talking about adopting a child. And uh, we, you know, decided to try to have another one. So, because you knew once you do the prostate thing, whatever you do, you're pretty much done as far as trying to have kids. So we were lucky and we had a, a little girl. Her name was Anna. And, uh, I got through my prostate cancer and she was born shortly after I went through my radiation treatment because when she was a baby, I couldn't hold her on my lap because I had so much radiation. In. Um, but we were blessed with her. And then in 2012, my dad passed away. He passed away on... Uh, 11, 12 of 12. And I'm not good with dates, but I can always remember his because he was buried on 12, 12 of 12. And he wow. was 77 years old when he died. And just as a side note, I got his wallet. I was the executor on his estate and I got his wallet and he had $77 in his wallet. Wow. And this might not make a whole lot of sense to you, but let's fast forward. Well, uh, we got to, in 2016, I lost Anna in an accident in our home. And I was in Charleston, uh, couldn't get back, and it was just, there's no tragedy. I, I don't have any words for what a parent goes through if they lose a child and I've been through it I can't describe it I can't really tell you how how hard of a loss it is there's no way I could tell you that you could understand it the English language doesn't there's no way it's such a loss that it's um it threw me into a you know a literal tailspin I didn't I literally couldn't work I mean I couldn't think um my family was devastated i was uh she was three and a half years old you know so that's a prime time in a kid's life that they're really full of joy they fill up a house the, she was just a wonderful little kid you know and it, it's a uh, you know anybody that ever has to do that i would not wish that on my worst enemy it's the it's the hardest thing to handle that I can imagine. I mean, I've lost my dad. You know, that was a tragedy. I lost my mom. I've lost uh, friends to drugs and car wrecks and all kind of stuff. But that is something that's different, you know, because it's a child. And I don't know that it matters how old your child is if you lose them, because that's just it's a part of you. It's like losing a limb or, or something like that. It's something that can't be replaced. But you do get through it. And, you know, I've had some friends that lost, uh, they lost two sons on New Year's Eve last year, and they are in those early stages. And I said, here's what you will do as you get through there. You may think this will never end, but you will get stronger. The tragedy never goes away. The loss never goes away, but you will get stronger. 
And it's kind of like the analogy of like, if you pick up a weight, first time you pick up a hundred pounds, it's heavy. But if you carry that hundred pounds every day, you're going to get to where you can carry it and you don't really notice it that much. It's still a hundred pounds though. It never changes, but you get stronger through things like that. And you realize that life isn't fair. It's what it is. It's what we get. It's what we're blessed with. So whatever you get, remember to be thankful for it and know that if you go through a tragedy like that, you will get through it, but you'll never get over it. It's just one of those things. But we we lost her. I know the first uh, year or so, uh, you know, it just affected our family, uh, my daughters, all of them differently. Uh, you know, we had a daughter that was suicidal. Uh, we had another daughter that got uh, mixed up. It was just a horrible thing to deal with. But afterwards, uh, my wife and I got talking about, um, you know, if maybe we need to adopt, maybe it would be something we could do in memory of our daughter uh, and, you know, do something good out here. So we started the adoption process through a Christian adoption agency in Florida and we got picked. So you have to make these uh, books. So like you have a book of your life. It's only first names. You don't share last names or anything like that. It's a picture of you, your family, your house, uh, you know, doesn't tell where you live. It's just, it's just basic, I guess, like a um, brochure on your family. And that was one of the hardest things I ever did because, you know, Anna wasn't there. So all the family photos we did, we didn't have a picture of her. So we had to make all that. We got through all that, but we got picked like within maybe six months, they send that uh, brochure out to this, uh, this is a counseling agency. So the lady, the ladies call in and say, Hey, I'm in a bad situation. You know, I want to put my kid up for adoption and they give from those brochures. They may give them 10 or 15 different families that are prospective adoptive parents. And we got picked pretty quick. And the girl that, uh, picked us, she was in prison. So the only time we saw her was, you know, one time on a Zoom call. So then uh, it comes close to the time for uh, her to be due. She's going to have to come out of prison one day, have the child go back in. So we're at Cape Canaveral waiting there for, you know, news to, that we could go to the hospital and get him. And we get the news on the the 8th, I think, of August, and that was 2018. That little boy was born on the 9th, which is his birth mother's birthday and my wife's birthday. Wow. So we... You know, when I see numbers line up, something like that is comforting that somehow there's some kind of sense in this. Because when we got him, it's been like, you know, when you talk about gifts, you know, our daughter Anna was a huge gift. This little boy, his name's Towns, is a gift. 
and he really came into our life two years after we lost our daughter and he has he hasn't taken her place he has created his own space you know that we really had to get busy we couldn't mope around and and feel sorry for ourselves we had to get busy changing diapers and teaching him to walk and picking him up when he fell and all these things and you know now i'm doing soccer with him and all this stuff it's been so the lows so low and the highs so high i've just been blessed and all of those things are blessings even the tragedies you realize how good life is even though it's not fair it's still good and it gives you hope to keep going and i just know that i've been blessed so much that if i died today i've had a pretty good life you know and i know that with those uh those tragedies and the the good things that you go through don't get too high don't get too low but be grateful for it all because the journey is the gift because i've always heard the saying you know money money comes and goes sometimes you got it sometimes you don't but time just goes It only goes. There's no, it doesn't come and go. It just goes. And you only get one time around. So enjoy everything and be grateful for everything and try to learn from the hard things and try to not get too high when the good things happen. I'm just really grateful. And that keeps me just really thankful. I don't know how else to say it. I'm really thankful for my life. I've had a unique life. Um, Everybody's life's unique, but I'm just really grateful for mine. And if I went back, I don't know much I would do over. I don't know if I'd have gone in business in 2009, though. <laughs> that, was a, that was an experience. Mm. <laughs> that, was, that was incredibly powerful. And just the, uh, the vulnerability and transparency that you're sharing with us, I, I greatly appreciate it. It may be the first time on this podcast that I'm as a host where I almost sat back and became a listener as as the podcast was going on. It was it was just powerful. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, your your life embodies not you know just talking about it, but you live it, and yep. um, and I, I'm I'm extremely grateful for you. Um, and it is interesting, it, you know, my life is not, my tragedies pale in comparison to what you've gone through, but those low times, um, the commonality with, with you in my life, Russell, is just in those difficulties, they have, um, they have birthed a new level of gratitude in my life, of intentional gratitude um, that I, I would not be the same uh, had I not gone through those things that I wouldn't have wished on my enemies either. And that, and they pale in comparison to what you've gone through. So, um, thank you. Th- this is again, why we do this podcast, you know, um, yeah, podium finishes are great, but they pale in comparison to character and humility. And because we all have, we all suffer from the human condition of we live in a fallen world. It's beautiful. But like you said, it's not fair. You know, what is fair? You know, I'm, I'm also glad that I don't get what I deserve. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So 
Russell, for us to, uh, to wrap up here, where can, can people find you, whether they want to look more at your company, they want to connect with you personally, where can we send the listeners? Oh, you can use my email. Um, I don't, I don't really have much of a social presence. Um, I'm kind of old fashioned, you know, I really don't have much. We do have a website, but I don't, I'm just not really available there, but emails or text or anything. I mean, it's fine. Perfect. Well, uh, we'll you do have a, a website. Yeah, we Where do. We you... have a website. We've actually started working on that, but you could probably get that from Catherine better than you could me. Okay. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll find that out and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, sure. Well, great. Well, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. We, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you guys. I enjoyed it. Russell, it's an honor to know you and to call you my friend. Um, the world is a better place because of you. And so thank you for taking time out of your, your schedule to uh, share some of your story with us. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it very much.